Welcome back to the Hey Roadie Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the Ocean State. We are your hosts, Nick and Sasha, and welcome back to episode five of the Who to Watch series. Uh, this episode is featuring Aaron Samuels, and our Who to Watch series is brought to you by the Pepito Opportunity Connection, which is a nonprofit private foundation dedicated to listening and working together with Rhode Island's Black, Indigenous, and People of Color communities to empower and create individual success stories by investing in education, job skills, training, and entrepreneurial ventures. Uh, we're very, very appreciative of Pepito Opportunity Connection, uh, everything that they do for our state, our communities, um, our the city of Providence, and we're really happy to have them on as a sponsor. Um, and <clears throat> funny enough, uh, we are your hosts, Nick and Sasha, but uh, today the intro is just me. Um, we were uh, you know, forced to do our episode remote today with Aaron. Um, Sasha wasn't feeling great and we just thought it was the best to do it remote, keep everybody nice and safe and healthy. Um, and I, I think you'll still enjoy this episode. I think it was a really great one. Aaron is a very interesting guy. He's, uh, he's had a lot going on for him. Uh, he's been very busy over the past few years. Um, and you can read all about him in our Who to Watch article in Providence Monthly January or right on our website, ProvidenceOnline.com. Um, Aaron has a uh, pretty impressive CV, notably a f- co-founder and uh, serving COO at Blavity, which is a media company created for Black millennials and Afro-tech and Black VC wealth-building platforms, uh, as well as being a co-founder of Collide Capital, uh, which is based in New York, but has um, satellite offices in Rhode Island uh, and also in California. Hmm. He goes into uh you know extensive background um on you know how he came to find himself fi- founding a couple of companies um you know his earlier life how his parents influenced him how his surroundings influenced him um and uh you know I think it's just a really great conversation he's very very interesting and I think everybody can take something from this so I'm not going to keep you in the intro for too long and uh without further ado enjoy our who to watch episode with Aaron Samuels Rhode Island, LA, New York. Oh my God, that's so exciting. That's so cool. Please tell me you like Rhode Island the best. Yeah, I mean, I'm from here. Like, you know, <laughs> Rhode Island Rhode Island is 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 and forever will be my home. I'm, I'm in Rhode Island, you know, I'm in Rhode Island right now. Um, yeah, we were supposed to be in person, but I messed it all up. I'm so sorry for that. <laughs> no, Did you come here just good. for us? <laughs> no, no, no. So, you know, I'm, I'm here, you know, 30 to 50% of the time. So, um, what, what I tell people is that, uh, if you want to get a meeting with me in Rhode Island, then I can almost definitely take the meeting. But if you want to get a meeting with me tomorrow, I almost definitely can't. Right. So I just, <laughs> I just, I just need, I just need Some a little time. bit of time to, to schedule and, 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 and find ways to make it work. Um, I love that. But, no, but I love this place. My, my parents still live here. My brother lives here. Um, this is, this is my home. What part of Rhode Island are you from? So I grew up in Edgewood. Oh, awesome. Cool. Cool. Right. That's amazing. I, um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think Rhode Island is small enough that like you're a little familiar with just about everywhere. Um, yeah. I couldn't point it out on like a map because I actually have the worst mapping skill. Like I couldn't even <laughs> point it, out where I am on a map. Is it the Eagles? Where, where, is where it, are you from? Sasha? 
I'm from Rhode Island. I'm from Cumberland, Rhode Island, but I live in Providence. I live on the east side now. Okay. Cumberland originally, though. Yes. Uh-huh. And how, how about you, Nick? Uh, North Smithfield. North Smithfield? Yeah. Okay. Is Edgewood the Eagles? Is it Edgewood the Eagles? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We used to play Edgewood in uh, football when I was in like, uh, you know, when I was yeah. A Edgewood kid. South Elmwood um, had a, a a strong football team. Yeah. Um, when I was growing up, but maybe, maybe maybe still does. I don't I don't know the yeah. I haven't kept up with my circuit <laughs> um, as as much these days. <laughs> um, I would love to really quick. Obviously, like we're just you know catching up and getting to know each other, but um, I would love to jump in um about who to watch and you're part of who to watch. I think it's I'm so happy that you are um included on this list. And after doing some research and reading your article, I just feel like you are checking so many boxes um that I think is so interesting. Like from a even just like in the scope of what you do, like arts, money, like all these things that necessarily don't always like fit hand in hand. The fact that you're able to go through life like succeeding at both of those things, I think is one very inspirational but two I think something that our listeners and myself included would love to hear like how that started like what little Aaron what where did you come from <laughs> yeah um so I, I mean I, I definitely am a, am a product of, of my family my community and my environment um in, in a lot of positive ways mm-hmm. um I'm, I'm black and Jewish and so grew up in a, in a mixed race, mixed faith household uh, in Edgewood, um, which is a pretty diverse community, um, both uh, kind of ra- racially as well as socioeconomically. Um, and, you know, in Rhode Island, I, I always felt, um, you know, that I had access to multiple communities, you know, grew up, you know, part of black community spaces, part of Jewish community spaces. Um, part of artistic spaces, part of academic spaces. And I'm really fortunate to have two parents who are, who are clinical psychologists who always encouraged me to, to not let the world put me in a box. Um, so when I was really interested in math, they were signing me up and putting me in math camp. When I wanted to play around with theater, they were putting me in theater programs. When, um, when I started writing, they... Um, you know, they encouraged me to continue writing, even though at that point in time, I identified as a math nerd. And they said, you don't, you don't have to, don't have to be a math nerd um, without being a writing. You can, you can be two types of nerds. And, you can be both you know, nerds. You can be both nerds. And, you know, and then when I played football in high school, they said, yeah, okay, you can, you can also be the, you know, starting varsity wide receiver. Like that, that's okay too. And, and so, so I, I, I think that I was given from a young age permission to explore um, lots of uh, different aspects of my identity. And I, I really credit my parents to that. Um, but one of the most formative uh, aspects of my youth was my participation in the Providence Youth Poetry Slam team, um, which was operated out of AS220. Uh, I joined that program when I was 14, 15 years old. Um, and you know, it was an incredible program uh, where I was working with other youth artists, um, you know, older adult mentors who uh, helped me hone my voice. Um, and so, at, you know, at age 15, I, I identified as a poet and I, I never left the house without a notebook and I was always writing down my thoughts and my feelings. And, um, and Providence had a really great program. And I remember the, the first year that I made the team, we, we went to the Nationals, which were in New York City. And I'm, I'm 15 years old, um, 14, 15, um, right around that time. And, uh, 
we made it to finals and uh, we performed at the Apollo uh, in New York city, Whoa. which was just a, a wild experience um, to, to be a teenager performed at the Apollo. And we've been rehearsing these poems for, you know, almost a year and we got on stage and we did this group piece um, about identity and, you know, Rosario Dawson is in the crowd. Dave Chappelle is in the crowd, you know, um, and uh, we got a standing ovation and, and it, 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 it it changed, it it, it changed my life Um, because, you know, I love, I love Rhode Island. Grow up and, and it's, it's still a place that I call home. But, um, but I think having that experience in New York and as part of this national conference really kind of expanded my worldview a little bit, um, to meet writers from, from all over the country who identified as, as, as youth artists, um, who identified as young writers to to have that experience, um, with, with a packed house at the Apollo theater. Uh, it, it really, you know, solidified in, in, in me that, uh, that, that my story mattered. Um, and, and that using storytelling as a means of, of empowerment was important, not just for me, but, but for other, for other young people, and especially for young people from marginalized communities. Um, so then I continued for many years as a writer. Um, I started coaching teams. I started doing youth workshops, um, became an educator, um, worked with teams in St. Louis, in Washington, DC, um, coached the Providence Youth Poetry Slam team years later when my brother was on it. Um, and my brother is now one of the uh, co-directors of Providence Slam today. Uh, and, um, you know, it just became, it became a, a hub for, for not, just, not just poetry, but really what it means to use storytelling um, as a way to empower. Mm. And that in many ways kind of set the stage for, uh, for the next you know, big thing that I did in my career, um, which was um, after after a few a few other things along the way, I worked on Wall Street and I, I worked in product. I got an MBA, um, but then I, I I founded a company, yeah, um, with some of my friends from college called Blavity. And the point of that company was to to use storytelling and uh, ownership of our own narratives as a way to uh, to create a world in which all Black people are happy. Yeah, I. First of all, thank you for jumping into that a little bit. Um, I think that's such an interesting way. Well, first of all, so much credit to your parents. I think that we live in a world where like wanting your child to be successful and almost like pointing them in the direction that you think is going to be successful for them. I think probably a lot of kids go through that. So awesome that they really like said sky's the limit. Like be every type of nerd, be a jock, be a writer, be like do all the things you can do. I think that's incredible. And I think that, you know, that's living, having that experience is really great, but also I have a, just a couple questions. Um, but one, I think it's awesome based on what you said in your experience growing up, living in a multi-race, multi-religion, all this sort of household, and then using your words to a crowd, you know, who may have never seen that before or heard a similar story before you were probably touching on a lot of people that, you know, at the time as a 15 year old, I'm sure you're, you're in your head. You're not like what person that is living the same experience as I am is going to really be inspired by this work. But now that you're older and you can look back, that's must be like a really cool, like thing to think about. And also like Rosario Dawson 
and celebrities like watching you and that I almost passed out because I love celebrities. So like all you had to say was that. And I was like, <laughs> this is incredible. Um, but I feel like to, to, to join a poetry organization, a slam poetry organization at such a young age, what gave you like, were you always someone who was like bringing around a notebook and taking notes and noticing your environment? Like, was there something specific? Cause I think poetry, at least from my experience, um, in school and, and just around friends, whatever poetry was never like the first thing that people were like, I want to be a poet. You'd like write things in your notebook. And I feel like you must've had like some sort of thing that spoke to you to make you say like, I need to do this. And then, I don't know. I'm just curious. I think that's so cool, but being 15 and being like, I am a poet. That's crazy <laughs> and amazing. Well, I think, I think that, you know, I, I always wrote a little bit, um, but it was, it was, it was the community in, in, in Providence that really encouraged me to, to hone the craft. Mm. Um, and, and it was honestly, it was also a little bit of the, of the competition, you know, when, when you're only writing poems for yourself, everything you think you write is, is great. Um, and then, and then you start reading other people's poetry and mm. interacting as part of a community and then. And then you start thinking everything you write is terrible. <laughs> um, and, and that's a little bit of the journey. And, th and then you start, you start kind of ri ri rising up again. And, and so I think that um, meeting so many people my own age that were writing poems significantly better than mine, <laughs> um, you know, pu pushed, pushed me to want to hone my craft. Um, and also helped me fall in love with, with the concept of storytelling. And, you know, you were, you were riffing on this earlier on, but you know, the question of, is somebody going to relate to my story? What does that mean? Um, I think you start realizing that, that specifics are, are universal, right? Like the best, the best personal stories are hyper, hyper, hyper specific. And that, and yet it kind of makes everybody feel something. Mm. Um, and when you're in a room listening to, to art that way and, and feeling yourself moved, um, in some ways it, it creates a permissioning for you to then um, tell the hard stories of, of, of your own life. I love that. I think that is so wonderful. And I think more people who, you know, can hear a story from you, so clearly a very successful person that you love art, you love poetry, but there's like all these multi sides to you. I think for our listeners and hopefully like younger people are going to see that and be like, okay, I don't have to be one thing. Like I can be multiple things. Um, so after, I know you said like after um, you were a teen and then going to school, you worked on Wall Street, which is like crazy. Like how different is being like, you know, I just picture like a very cool, beautiful, you know, artist reading poetry with your team. And then you're like on Wall Street, which is like probably the exact opposite, right? Very Can different. I write in that? Very different experiences. So the fact that you went from that to that, but then almost I mean and again correct me if I'm wrong it's almost like you use you know all these like learnings to create blavity which is such an important part in your story that was the company that you started but it was also the company where you got to like uplift and make voices heard and and create media that meant something um so but, how was your experience like how did you get there connect yeah. the dots yeah take us from I mean, New, New York Wall Street to California blavity yeah I'll, 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 I'll take I'll take you yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take you there. Um, I think that, you know, coming from, from the household that I came from and the community that I came from really helped me, you know, from an early age, um, view the different parts of myself 
as an advantage as opposed to as a disadvantage. Um, and uh, I tried to be authentic in the way that I showed up into these different spaces. So even the job, the job at, um, at Bain and Company, which is where I was working in New York, um, I didn't get the job um, when I first applied. Um, that you know the the Bay New York New York office didn't didn't even interview for for people that went to my school, which is Washington University in St. Louis. Um, I found the recruiter's email. I sent her a cold email, and I I attached a video of myself doing a spoken word poem to the video, and I said, "You've never met a candidate like me." Um, not asking for the job, just asking for an interview. Here's my resume. Here's a poem. This is who I am. Can wow. we talk? Um, and and she responded to the email and said, "You're right. This is a very unique application. I have not I have not seen an applicant like you. Let's talk." Um, and and you know I still had to go then through all the rounds of interviews and it it lasted you know it was a probably a fifteen month process. But um but I you know I did that my like <laughs> my junior year of college. Um and but but ultimately didn't get the internship. But then but then got the full time job. Um and um and you know and showed up and I was you know, the only poet in my, in my cohort. Um, I was the only black person in my cohort. Um, there were no black people in the cohort before me or after me. Um, so in three years in, in Bay, New York. So, you know, there were things about it that were isolating. Um, but also, you know, I, I think if I don't, if I don't send that poem to that recruiter, I don't get the job. Uh, and, and so to kind of come from a, from an environment that would, that encouraged me to do things like that instead of, instead of, perhaps hide, hide those things or try to perform that I'm, I have a hyper wall street identity, um, that, that wouldn't have worked. Um, and so I think that, you know, I'm just lucky to have parents that always encourage me to kind of play my own game. Um, and, and that kind of, that takes me to the next step. So I'm working on, I'm working at Bain, realizing that I'm, I'm starting to get the inclinations of wanting to start my own thing. But, um, you know, at Bain you're, you're consulting. And so, it's strategic. It's high level. I'm, I was working with some of the smartest people that I've ever worked with, um, but you're not actually operating businesses. Um, you're advising on businesses. And so several of my men mentors said that if I wanted to start my own company, I needed to get my hands a little dirtier. I needed to actually learn how to build and, and run a business. Um, so I, I applied to a job as a product manager uh, at a series B tech company in Los Angeles. Uh, so this was a, it was a mobile security company called Telesign. Uh, do you know what two-factor authentication is? Yep. Okay, so Telesign was one of the early movers into in two-factor authentication. You know, they were one of, one of the first companies to ever ever do it. So they were a security company that that effectively said passwords are no longer safe. The only way to truly be safe is to have multiple forms of authentication, um, uh, and starting with um, text message codes, and so you know, they'd started that a while back and I joined at the series B stage when we were in a process of, of innovating and of building new types of products to, um, to, to verify, uh, identity. Uh, I loved it. I, I thought it was, it was kind of a, a riff on, you know, I said all of my poetry was about identity and now my, now my startup world was also about identity too. Um, just a different, a different type of identity verification. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and I, and I, and I enjoyed the work. Um, I was a product manager, which, which meant my job was to ultimately work with the engineering team to help steer the direction of the products that we built. 
but the day to day of of that work was mostly doing research to figure out what needed to be built. So that means I was working with the sales team, I was working with the marketing team, um, I was running analyses on on our internal data, um, and then working with um, working with 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 engineers to to build the next wave of innovative products at the company. It was a wild ride. It was in Los Angeles. Um, I'd never lived in LA before. Took me from from New York to LA, um, and after I was there for for about two years, um, the they sold the company. The company exited, um, and it exited for for around three hundred million dollars. Um, and I had, <laughs> yeah, I'm a kid from Rhode Island. You know, I I'd, I'd never I'd never seen numbers that big in my life. You know, the fact that that a company that now I owned a part of had just sold for $300 million. Um, it blew my mind. It, it changed again, another, another perspective shifting experience. Um, it changed, it changed what I thought was possible. Um, and, uh, and it made me really want to be an owner. It made me, it made me want to want to, it solidified my conviction that I wanted to found my own company. Mm. Uh, so I, I still felt that I needed a little bit more of a skill set. So even though I'd started the seeds for 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 Lavity with with Morgan, Jeff, and Jonathan around the time I was at Telesign, um, I decided that I wanted to go get an MBA to to round out my business skill set. Uh, so um, so I applied to to Stanford um, and was lucky to be uh, admitted. So um, so after Telesign, uh, while while starting Blavity, I I went. And um, and went to Stanford for two years, um, up in up in Palo Alto. Jeez, Louise! And not only is all this work stuff crazy, I feel like also the fact that you went from mm-hmm. Rhode Island to New York, which is already like a pretty big difference. But I mean, there's some similarities. But then to go from like East Coast sort of vibe, then to go to LA, I'm assuming, I mean, I don't know if like any family or friends like directly came with you, but even if so, like that is such uh. a big change. Like think about like when, when the weather is weird in Rhode Island for like a week and everyone like loses their shit. Like, Oh my God. Like imagine like being one place your whole life. And then all of a sudden being like, okay, now I'm going to start a whole new life doing something totally different, working with new people in a new environment oh my god and then going to school on top of it jeez louise it was a lot and yeah i mean you know my family you know my immediate family lives in rhode island my my family's originally from new york both my parents are from new york so new york rhode island that felt like home Mm. um you know when i went to undergrad at washington university in st louis i was in the midwest for a few years but i had a little bit of family out there and um and it, it felt it felt close la didn't have didn't have any family it was I was definitely on a, on a solo journey. Um, and, it, but I built, I built, a, I built a home, I built a community. And, and honestly, today I would say that LA is probably the place that, that I have the largest concentration of friends um, for, for both because of the friends I made there and also randomly people from all walks of my life, people who from Rhode Island who I grew up with, people from college, people from grad school have all moved to LA since. So, um, so it wasn't in 2014, but but now today I, I definitely consider it um, one of my homes. Wow, that's I love that. That is amazing, and it just like I think something that's very clear about any time we talk to these people on our Who to Watch lists, there's just like this sort of common line that you guys are just like 
you have more, one, you have more hours in the day than anyone else. <laughs> Two, well, and this is something that I was going to bring up based on what you were, you were saying about when you were younger, moving to LA by yourself and sort of starting this new adventure. I wonder if that little, you know, you said you like competition. I wonder <laughs> if that little competition bug, but like almost with yourself, like I came out here, I have to do this almost like you're, you're, you're against yourself here. Like you're, you have to decide if this was the right move. I'm assuming the type of person you are, you're like, this is the right move. I'm going to make sure that it's the right move. And you were able to like make these uh, friendships. And like you said, you met your partners from Blavity while you were still working and going to school. Um, so the fact that you were able to start those things, like you had, you were in competition with yourself, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think I've always had a competitive spirit. Um, I think that I've gotten older that's shifted more from Aaron versus world or Aaron versus self to my team versus mm -hmm. world, my mm -hmm. team, um, you know, ver versus adversity, my team versus systemic oppression. Um, I think that, that the, the competition still is internalized, but it, it feels like the, 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 the field that I'm competing against is different. Um, and Blavity very much felt that way. You know, it was, it was definitely team Blavity. Um, and, and honestly, anything great that, that I have ever been a part of um, in my life has, has been as a part of a team. Um, I, I really firmly believe that um, the myth of American individualism is a pretty toxic and unhelpful concept. Um, you know, I believe that great organizations and great initiatives are ran by incredible teams. And usually the first thing that I look for when looking at companies to invest in or looking for people that I would potentially want to work with or even when just listening to narratives of people that have built great things, what I'm listening for is what is their ability to build an effective team, to be mm -hmm. a team player, to be both a leader and a follower. Um, and I think that, you know, that that really started when I was part of slam poetry teams as a, as a youth um, and, and of course sports teams and things like that. But, um, but definitely when we were building Blavity, it was four of us from the beginning and we said, let's build, let's build a team. Um, and, you know, over the last you know, nine years, um, we've grown Blavity to, to over 200 people. Um, and probably over 500 people have worked with Blavity over the course of that time. Um, we work with a lot of contractors and writers and who do kind of short-term stints with us. Um, so we have kind of some rollover there, but, um, but there's a huge alumni community uh, as, as part of Blavity, which I'm, I'm also incredibly proud of. And so we were thinking about, you know, team teams from the very beginning. And I think, I think that's probably the, the healthier manifestation of my competitive uh, spirit. I, I wonder if, you know, my shadow self goes a different direction um, <laughs> um, with, with, with the competitive energy. And the fact that you were able to, I think something I, I'd like to think that our generation has gotten really good at is growing and like, learning how to grow and evolve and, and take that and, and create strength from it, which clearly like, you know, Aaron being at, uh, uh, at poetry, um, competitions, taking that competitive edge and then turning it into what you are now, where you're competitive for your team and for the greater good and what you can accomplish together. Like, I think that's really important 
you can use, I mean, and I think being competitive is an extremely healthy um, emotion and uh, trait, but I think it's even better if you can use it in a way that for the, for good, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think, I agree. I think it's a tool, you know, yeah. I think a competitive spirit is a hammer, you, you know, mm. you can use a hammer to build or you can use a hammer to break. Um, and, you know, my, my goal is to to try to build something good. Yeah, I love that. Um, so when you, so it was you and four other individuals who created Blavity. I mean, three other individuals. Oh, sorry. Four, three. four, four, four sorry. of us total. Four total. Um, what was it like starting that conversation? What were like the first few months like? And then obviously, like you said, you're now at like 200 employees. And then over that, when you do contracted work, you have so many people who are coming back in an alum situation. Like clearly you, you created such a successful company. Um, how, what was it like in those beginning months? Yeah, well, so it was Morgan's idea, um, and we we were all friends in undergrad. Um, you know, we were four years at WashU. So when Jeff was a senior, I was a junior. Morgan was a sophomore, and Jonathan was a freshman. So we only all overlapped for one year, but we all were friends. Um, and uh, Morgan approached each of us and said that she had this idea to create a black media company, and um, and asked if we wanted to build it with her. And it was kind of one of these moments where, because we'd all worked on projects as undergrads and, and all, all were, were, were good friends, but it kind of felt like she was getting the gang back together, you know? Because um, this was now, this would have been, you know, three or four years after graduation. And, you know, she, she got us all back together and we had a retreat um, in her parents' house um, in, in their basement and just spent three days putting sticky notes on the wall. Um, how do we want to do this? Are we going to build this? Are we going for it? What does it need to look like? What needs to be true for us to all leave our jobs, <laughs> um, et cetera. Um, and, and we all, we all believed, um, we saw, we saw that there was a gap for, for millennials and Gen Z in the ecosystem, specifically with regards to black media. Um, and in the way that, you know, my parents' generation had Essence Magazine or that my grandparents' generation had Jet Magazine we didn't really think that there was an emblematic black media brand that, that truly spoke to where millennials and Gen Z were consuming content. You know, you had BET on television, but the reality is like most millennials and Gen Z don't really watch that much TV. Um, you know, you had uh, a bunch of, a bunch of kind of smaller sites that all kind of spoke to different subsections of the black millennial community that, that over the years we've actually, you know, worked with a lot of them and have great partnerships. So, I don't want to say there was nothing there. There were definitely a lot of really interesting things happening, but there wasn't something that was comprehensively digital first, mobile first, um, designed for uh, for our generation. And um, and we felt the urgency for that, especially um, you know coming out of uh, coming out of out of what happened in Ferguson and you know the the, the murder of, of Mike Brown. And you know we all we all just lived through. 2020 and you know what happened with the the pandemic of covid and the, the pandemic of structural racism that really got brought to the forefront of american media in 2020 um but um but in many ways we had a very similar moment that also took place between 2012 and 2014 um where kind of the the original origins of the, of the black lives matter movement started and because we'd all went to school in st louis st louis is very close to ferguson so so we were we were very proximate to many people that were that were on the ground that were that were were saying, "Hey, the the way that they are telling these stories is not accurate." Um, you know, we're we're here on the ground, and there's police brutality that is that is happening. The the story that's on the news is is of people that are looting convenience stores. That's that's not 
that's not the story. The story, the story of these other things that is not that that are not being filmed. There, there isn't a way for us to tell the story. And so people were taking to social media. People were taking to Twitter. Um, Instagram was new. People were just starting to take to Instagram. Uh, Vine was a thing for a second. People were on Vine, and then Vine no longer. And then, but in many ways, like the Vine culture, I think laid the foundation for what ultimately became TikTok culture. And right, so so we're following these trends, and we're realizing that, you know. Um, that there there was a different way that content could both be consumed, but also that that news outlets could source content. And we really and so we started sourcing our content from social channels. We started st- sourcing our content from boots on the ground, um, and we started realizing that um, that if we if we did this right, we could create something that was that was very very uh, important for our community. It, it wasn't just it wasn't just creating content. Um, we were we were telling the truth, and we were telling a narrative that. That, that we were all experiencing, right? The reason that I didn't watch the news is because I didn't trust the news. So I'd much rather go to Twitter. I'd much rather go to Instagram. But then you're dealing with the noise and you're dealing with this, this, this huge funnel. Uh, what Blavity helped do was be a filter for that, was to source from these channels, was to aggregate, um, creating newsletters, creating digital content, um, creating websites, and then ultimately conferences and events. Um, it started with information, but then expanded um, in many other directions. And I'll say one thing about that. Um, we, when we started expanding, it was really important to us that we weren't just creating content about black pain. Um, it, it's very important to talk about structural racism and all of the accompanying aspects of that. Uh, but also too often when news outlets talk about black people, they only talk about the ways that black people are oppressed. Um, and that narrative I think can also be harmful to, um, to the black psyche, to, to everybody's psyche. Um, yeah, well, you can... you, you can put that across the board and the news channels are just more likely to talk about anything bad. Like if they exactly. could put it Dead, in a violence, yeah. pain. And we didn't, and we didn't want to just, we didn't want to just replicate that kind of, that type of clickbaity, um, toxic content. We wanted to talk about it occasionally, um, yeah. when it was important, but we said for every piece of black pain content that we put out in the world, we wanted to juxtapose it with a piece of content about black joy. Um, and it was incredibly important for us to, to create an ecosystem that highlighted the fact that just like we live in the age of Black Lives Matter, just like we live in the age of the murders of Mike Brown and ultimately what, what then you know happened in, 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 in 2020 uh, with the murders of, of George Floyd and, and, and several others, um, we also live in the age of Beyonce. And we, we live in the age of of hamilton and you know just as just as black people have undergone systemic oppression since the beginning of this country um we've also been leaders in art and science in in technology um in 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 culture um and we wanted to be able to highlight those truths as well and so we made sure that, that we created a digital ecosystem that prioritized both of those truths. And that's what we wanted the experience of coming to Blavity to feel like. That it felt like you were coming to the cookout. It felt like you were coming to um, to a dinner table conversation where the full range of everything that Black millennials and Black Gen Z were talking about would take place um, in our platform. I think that's uh, like everything that you have said from the beginning of Morgan bringing the crew back together to ultimately sort of like your model of joy and pain, like not one equaling higher than the other, because you want to, you want to highlight both things, because as a black person living in the United States, there's room to experience both. But like one, like you should feel happy 
and you should also be able to see what what is real and what's going on and the hurt that's going on but being able to like feel that happiness for your community and for others who are dealing with really unfair and unjust things I think that's incredible that you put such an emphasis on making sure that Blavity did both of those things and well, I yeah, think you know our, our reality our reality is nuanced by definition and, and we didn't want to create any type of site that was going to be a flattening of that of that truth yeah and yeah i mean that kind of goes across the board too like if we were talking about uh you're trying to find it's a new version of like the you know the tv news that nobody wants to watch anymore but nobody wants to watch it anymore for a, mostly because they find a way to take anything and they know that negative stuff gets feedback and they'll take any story. Somebody could be rescuing puppies and they'll figure out a way to make it awful. <laughs> and people get burnt out on that stuff. Uh, and yeah. like, because people know on their, in their day-to-day lives, like, yeah, bad stuff happens, but also good stuff happens. And why are we not talking about that? <laughs> like, it's important yeah. to cover. It's important to cover. And, and I think that, you know, a lot of content has emerged over the past 10 years that has challenged that. I mean, you know, we saw the rise of the rise of Instagram superstars and, you know, the rise of TikTok channels and the rise of podcasting. And, you know, I think that, you know, even this media platform that we're engaging on right now um, is about creating a different type of story, a different type of content. And mm-hmm. I think what we learned is um, is that people are people are hungry for for a different type of consumption. Um, now. Thanks for kind of, again, I keep saying like, thanks for taking us through this adventure, (laughs) but it really does. It feels like it's this crazy, cool, I mean, not always fun, similarly to your concept, not always fun. I'm sure there's pain and there's hurt and struggle between getting here. We're lucky enough to hear all the the successes and the positives. So thank you for sharing that with us and for listeners who are deciding whether they're going to start their own business or whether they want to do something important to them and they're scared. I think hearing your words are really going to help people make those choices. Thank you. Um, of course. Um, something that I'm really curious about is you start this business with your three friends, now colleagues, always friends, but regardless, you start it. How do you get the word out? Where did that, like, how did you start to make that become as big yeah. as it is? There's, there, I don't have a great answer here. Um, I, I, <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll tell you what I tell other people who, who reach out to me and say they want to start media companies. Um, cause they ask me the same thing. Okay. How did you, how did you get to reaching, you know, a hundred million people a month? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you, where, where do you start? Did you pay uh, an agency to blast things around? Did you, you know, hire really expensive marketing teams? And the reality is it was just brute force. Um, I tell people we, we look, we, we posted 20 articles a day, every day for our first two years. And then we saw which ones hit yeah. and then, and then we would add promotion to the ones that were hitting. And then we do that over and over again. And it grew slowly, um, but it grew slowly and it grew deliberately. Um, what I will also say is that the algorithm changes every month. And so what every was hour. True, every hour, right? So what was true for us when we were starting a media company in 2014 is also very different than what is true today. Um, there are different hacks, different content might be, you know, able to go viral, et cetera, et cetera. Like right now, you know, Instagram, if you, if you're not posting a video, it, it, it completely deprioritize the content. So now all your, all your content is now videos. So now, you know, now you got all these people that are turning pictures into videos um, and just making them slight, slowly move across the screen. Right. Yeah. So, um, so you have to be aware of what the trends are that, that you're up against, but a big part of what we did was, was, was just brute forced it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, we also you also have to create content that people want to to read. And and so we had a sense of the pulse of our community, but all that does is increase the probability that people are going to read it. It doesn't guarantee it because yeah. there's still all these other factors and all this other noise that you're competing with, even if your content is fantastic. Yeah, I, I can imagine too, like starting um, your own business. One, it's already freaking scary as hell. So scary. But having, adding all these other components, you know, really wanting to use Blavity. Well, it is a platform, but like the reason you created it was to be this platform for black millennials to get content. So that's already more pressure because wanting to succeed for those people and, and wanting to give a space for people to feel again, the joy, the pain, the community is so important. So I, I I would assume that those first two years when you were posting 20 articles a day, it was probably like the most like sickest, coolest, like most intense ride of your life. Like just like every day figuring out what's, what's next, what's working, what's not working. And it's uh, so cool yeah. that it like, was a rad. Yeah. It felt high stakes. I agree with you. It was very high stakes. But it's nice that like, you know, you went through that and obviously the algorithms are different then than they are now, but now you can kind of be in a position where you're helping other, you know, other people who are interested in starting something and you can give them advice and you can, you know, either tell them you're crazy or say like, here's something that could work. Um, yeah. Well, what I will say is any, anybody who is starting a new company has has to be a little crazy. Um, it, it's almost the requirement, and you know I, I tell people this all, all the time. You know the numbers change a lot, but 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 directionally they're they're the same. And you know it's a, it's about three percent of startups uh, end up succeeding. Mm. Um, so ninety seven percent of the time, if you're starting a company, it's it's going to fail. Um, it and then. On top of that, if you are working in the venture-backed startup ecosystem, most startups don't have uh, an exit event, meaning they either IPO or get acquired, um, or you know hit enough profitability that they can buy buy back or you know buy out their, their investors. Um, most of them, that doesn't happen for seven to twelve years. Mm-hmm. So you know, the, you know, ten years on average. So. Um, you know, 3% chance of success and you don't know if you're, if it's going to work for 10 years, who, who would do that? Who, who would actually take, take that gamble, right? Like you, you have, you have to be so unreasonably like sure of yourself or you have to be so, you're so passionate about the thing that you're doing that it, that it doesn't matter if it fails because for the far, far, far shot that it succeeds, it's worth it. Um, <laughs> that's nuts. Like, Which one are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, it's it's crazy and it's unbelievable. And to think that you started like where you started to then not, I mean, I know even, even now there's still more to talk about what you're doing, but to, to see that is like in, it's insane and it's unbelievable, but it also gives, I think it gives people hope that like, Oh no, it actually is not insane. I mean, you have to be a little insane, but things can work out if you work your butt off, you're mm-hmm. passionate, you're competitive, you have a team you believe in, like things can work out. And I think you're kind of just like an amazing example of that. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate it. I, I also got ridiculously lucky. 
Um, and, and I think that, that a big part of the startup journey is, is luck. And so you do everything in your power to make it work. You, you build the best team, you do your research, you bring on great investors, you have, you know, you have a solid idea in a great market, you work your ass off, but you still need to get lucky. So everything that you're doing is just creating an opportunity for luck to grab you, mm-hmm. but sometimes it doesn't. Um, and I also know really incredible founders who worked really hard on great ideas with strong teams that it didn't work out. Um, and that, that can happen too. Isn't that what they say? Uh, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I actually have a, so I think a good way to kind of wrap this into uh, our local component. So one, you can answer a question for me and then we'll use that to, to push into Rhode Island because if I'm not mistaken, um, kind of the whole COVID, uh, pandemic is what pushed you into like back into Rhode Island, uh, more of your percentage of time. Um, and one thing you mentioned, I don't know, five minutes ago or so was, uh, venture capital, um, and venture backed, uh, startups. When you were in Rhode Island, you started, um, collide capital. Um, so I'm going to ask you to tell us about collide capital, but then also just define what a VC firm is for people that don't know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So VC firm stands for venture capital firm. Um, So venture capital is a subset of private equity. Um, So this means that I'm investing in companies that are not publicly traded. So you you can't buy them on the stock market. Um, The only way that you can invest in these companies is through private transactions um, with the company owners themselves. And the thing that distinguishes venture capital from the rest of the private equity field is typically venture capital happens significantly earlier in the life cycle of a company. So oftentimes venture capital firms are investing in, you know, a company's first few years of existence, sometimes before the incorporation docs have even been finalized. Usually we're talking about a founder, maybe, maybe a small team, five to 10 people, uh, an idea. Sometimes the product hasn't even launched yet, uh, early traction. Um, It's very, very risky because it's so early. Why do venture capitalists do it? Um, Because if you invest that early, then you you get a great price for the company. So then if the company ends up becoming worth a billion dollars, you can have significantly higher returns than if you invest later, once the company has already been established, then that gets baked into the price. And so that's generally what venture capital firms are looking for. They're looking for early stage companies that they believe can be worth billions of dollars um, in seven to 10 years. Uh, And they're giving a little bit of capital and then support and advice to help the founders get there. Great explanation, Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good. I Uh, needed that because I didn't know what any of those things meant. So thank you. I knew, uh, I knew essentially what a VC firm did, but I would never would have been able to like put a nice bow on it like that. So I'm glad I, I'm glad I did that. Um, And then, so I know that uh, when you came here uh, back to Rhode Island, spend more time here um, during COVID, you kind of noticed like the flourishing community going on. Like, can you tell us kind of what led you to start the uh, Collide Capital in Rhode Island? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I came, I came back to Rhode Island during COVID. You know, like like so many of us, mm-hmm. when terrible things happen in the world, um, you realize the things that matter most. And um, and for many of us, including myself, um, that was family. And so um, came back and said, if the world is going down, <laughs> I want to be I want to be with my family, with my, my community. I hadn't lived here properly 
since I was 18. You know, I, I left to go to college in St. Louis, then moved to New York, then was in California. Um, but coming back just brought back all the incredible feelings of, of the things that I loved running on the Narragansett, you know, Bay and, you know, grabbing, grabbing lobster rolls at, at Dune Brothers and downtown and, you know, Jamaican food at Island House and, and just like, just, just like the things that, that I, that I loved, um, about this place. But there were also some new things. Um, there was this building called the CIC that, that had, didn't exist before and suddenly was, was a, you know, a, one of the centerpieces of the Rhode Island entrepreneurial community. Um, Social Enterprise Greenhouse had, had been doing some incredible work. Mass Challenge had been doing incredible work. RI Hub had been doing incredible work. And, and you know, suddenly I'm realizing that there had been this consolidated effort across multiple state, um, nonprofit, and for-profit organizations to really boost the entrepreneurial ecosystem of Rhode Island. Um, and I fell in love. I said, oh, my goodness, I... I am I am a Rhode Islander. I am an alumni of this place who has worked on Wall Street and has an MBA from Stanford and has founded a company. I could maybe maybe I could contribute uh, to this community. So I started chatting with entrepreneurs and chatting with folks and started mentoring some some local businesses and realized that that I I thought that there was something that I that I could add and you know that was juxtaposed to what I was also seeing in the broader national ecosystem with Blavity. Um, one of the things that that I'm most proud of that we created at Blavity is a conference called Afrotech. Uh, Afrotech uh, is now the largest black tech conference in the world. Um, we just had our most recent one in Austin, Texas this past November. Uh, we had 25,000 people there. Um, so it's, there's nothing like it. I mean, you know, people are calling it the Black South by Southwest. It, you know, it was a tech conference. It was a music festival. People were getting jobs. We worked with most, you know, major Fortune 100 companies who are there hiring on the spot. We had venture capital firms investing. We had two different pitch competitions where we give non-dilutive capital to Black founders to continue their founder journey. Um, and, yeah, I just learned so much about supporting founders by running this Afrotech conference over the past decade. Um, I wanted to see what that could look like in Rhode Island. Um, I wanted to be part of the wave of people in Rhode Island that were already doing so much good. And so when, when I started brainstorming with my partner, Brian, um, who is very accomplished in his own right, Goldman Sachs, Harvard Business School, founder of an organization called Black VC, which is now the largest black investor ecosystem in the world. Um, when we started brainstorming what we wanted to do um, we realized that supporting founders at the intersection of multiple communities was where we saw um, our strengths. Um, supporting founders at the intersection of academia, of technology, of culture, and of venture. Um, and we, you know, we knew that we wanted to base it in places that were proximate to ourselves. And so, um, so we decided to establish it. We're, we're formerly headquartered in New York, um, and we have secondary headquarters in Rhode Island and in LA. And, and so that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing now. I'm looking for uh, great founders who are building incredible companies that want to scale. Uh, and I believe that some of the most impactful things that can happen in Rhode Island will be due to entrepreneurs. Um, and they need, they need our support uh, in order to flourish. And I want to, I want to be one of the forces among many here that can support uh, local entrepreneurs. Well, we're so happy that you came back. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's an amazing. And thanks 
again, I, even after reading um, your article and doing some research, I understood that there was some investing in, but I did not know what any of it meant because mention any sort of anything like that. And it goes right over my head. So appreciate you going into more detail and, and expressing how, how cool it must've been to come back to Rhode Island and sort of see this shift in, in what Rhode Island was, especially Providence. Um, as someone who lives in Providence, I feel like I've been living here for the last 10 years. And I feel like I really, I've not from day one, obviously, but even just in the small amount of time that I've been here, I feel like I've gotten to really see this city become this like art focused, entrepreneurial focused, like beautiful hub of amazing food and people and organizations and businesses. And I just, I feel super lucky that I get to be even just part of it, you know, being a person who can spend money in the city and, and hopefully add to who, you know, businesses and hopefully see them grow. But being able to come and say, I'm in a position where I can actually help these people establish a business and establish a company, I think is such a cool, I don't know, I just think that's really cool to come here after, you know, doing all these successful, amazing things, coming back to little Rhode Island and being like, I can help here. And I just think that's awesome. What a way to come back. (laughs) No, I I appreciate it. And and what I will also say is, you know, when I was 18, I think, I think I felt a lot of pressure to leave. Um, I I was worried that, that if I stayed, I wouldn't be able to grow in the ways that I wanted to grow as an artist, as, as an entrepreneur. Um, And I, I would like to change that. You know, I think that there's incredible talent um, that either is from here or, or, or comes here mm-hmm. and falls in love with Rhode Island um, because let's face it, it's it's a very easy place to fall in love with. Um, but then I think that a lot of entrepreneurs sometimes feel that they have to leave if they want to get capital or if they want to get support or mentorship, or if they want to grow their businesses. Um, but I think if we all work together, um, the other investment firms here, the state organizations, the the nonprofit organizations, I think that that we can we can create an ecosystem that that will be very sticky um that will make make entrepreneurs not want to leave because i think they already don't i think a lot of times they feel like they have to um so let's 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 make that untrue uh let's yeah. make rhode island a place where where entrepreneurs are vibrantly supported uh so that so that we can build a community around them yeah i love that and i think in general specifically with providence you know there's so many things um we we've been lucky enough to work with travis escobar from millennial rhode island a nonprofit yeah. organization yeah. that you know they're they're you know hashtag is choose rhode island and i think they're working on different areas than but i it, you look at the big picture and you're like we have all these incredible people errands of the of rhode island the travises of rhode island and everyone is you know seeing how much if we fix these i mean big problems but in the scheme of all these people in all these communities, these little problems, people aren't just going to come to Rhode Island to go to like the best colleges or to come and, and just, you know, start, you know, maybe their art career or are born here, but they think that there's no future here. Now Rhode Island is going to be a hub for that specifically Providence. And I'm like, I couldn't be any more like excited to be part of that community and, and proud of the people who, have, you know, given a lot of their experience, their time, their work, their money, their effort to make sure that like it stays that way. Yeah. And I feel the same way. I, I, I love it. 
Um, we are pushing right up to uh, the hour mark here, which uh, these things go by quick. Uh, so I just wanted to, uh, you know, I think we kind of covered off on most of the things we would have wanted to cover off on. Uh, and I wanted to give you an opportunity, obviously, besides uh, the Blavity website. Um, is there any place uh, for people to keep up with you, your social media channels, if you have a website you want to direct people to? Um, this is your, uh, your, you know, this camera, this camera, this camera. Well, <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely check out the work uh, that we're doing at Collide Capital. Um, if you go to collidecap.com, um, it'll show our portfolio companies, the different things that we invest in. Um, you can also follow us on, on our social media handles, um, on Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn, it's just at collide capital. Um, we're, we're pretty easy to find. Definitely all the Blavity sites, um, are great content as well. Look at, look at Blavity, look at Afrotech. Um, and, uh, and yeah, um, you know, we are, we're looking for entrepreneurs and so, if you're building something, if you're working on a project, um, if you've recently done a round of funding and you're looking to find investors that want to help take you to the next level, reach out to us. And, you know, we have an open submission platform on our site. Um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, I'm on all the socials and all the things and, um, you, you know, shoot me a DM, hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, if I can't talk to you, I'll, I'll find somebody who I can direct you to. Um, we are, we're looking, we're looking for, we're looking for entrepreneurs and the entire reason why we created Collide Capital is so that we could support the next generation of an incredible founders. Awesome. Well, there's a call to action for you. It's a good way to end it off. Uh, if you have something, uh, that you think would interest, uh, Aaron, reach right out to him, see if we can get something going. Um, and really just thank you for all your time today. Uh, I think this was awesome. I mean, doing things remote is not always the best, but this worked out great. I think this was fantastic. Yeah. And thanks so much for being so flexible. I just appreciate you coming or doing this virtually. And you are so amazing to chat with. Thank you for explaining um, everything with, you know, such detail, but like making it so someone like me who does not understand all everything like that, it was easy to understand. <laughs> good. Good. It should, it should be, you know, these, these things are, these things are not rocket science. Um, yeah. it, they, they've just been withheld from, from our communities and, it should be our job to make the information accessible. Awesome. Well, I love this. Um, I'm so grateful for you coming on. And I'm, I mean, usually at the end of these things, I'm like, I can't wait to see you do amazing things. Well, Aaron, you've already done pretty like amazing things. So I just can't wait to watch you like reach the moon. Continue to do them. <laughs> well, the I cool thing about what there. I do is, is that the, the next version of amazing things that I will do, if successful, means by definition that I'm going to be supporting other people doing their own amazing things. Um, it's very much a, a win together mentality. So, uh, so I'm excited to see what next, what, what, what comes next as well, because I'm really excited about the next generation of founders that we're going to back. I love this. I love, love this. It. I love what you're doing. I love your job. You're doing, you're killing it. And thank you for giving us your time. Um, we won't take any more of it. All, All right. right. Thanks, Thanks Aaron, Aaron. so much. We appreciate you. you. Bye. Bye. Bye.